Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, NBC News recently reported that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he is 100 percent focused on stopping President Joe Biden's administration. The statement is remarkable for the painful mockery it makes of Democrats and corporate media's stubborn insistence that the most important value is bipartisanship, Democrats and Republicans getting along, over and against majorities of the U.S. public getting the laws and policies they want and need and have elected officials to enact. But then wait a minute, the Senate minority leader is vowing to stop the dominant party's legislative agenda? How does that work? Well, listeners know the problem stems from a Senate where, to start with, Wyoming, with 578,000 people, has the same representation as California, population 39.5 million. And then there is the filibuster the rule that allows Senate minorities to block legislation indefinitely unless the majority can get 60 votes. It's the crucial backdrop to any conversation about the Biden agenda, though media don't always bring that point home. We'll talk about the filibuster with Andrew Perez, senior editor and reporter at The Daily Poster. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. A May 18th editor's note from CBS's 60 Minutes underscored producers' belief that they did nothing wrong in a segment on racist impacts of law enforcement use of facial recognition technology that omitted any mention of three pioneers in the field, black women, Joy Bulamwini, Timrit Gebru, and Deborah Raji. The 60-minute segment included a white male computer scientist from the National Institute of Standards and Technology and referred to a December 2019 NIST study as landmark, but ignored work from Bulamwini et al. that predates that study and indeed is cited in it as inspiration. Bulamwini says she spoke with 60 Minutes producers for hours and built a custom demo on the technology for Anderson Cooper. She was set up for an on-camera interview that was canceled at the last minute. The story on facial recognition, of course, is how the software often fails to account for black, Asian, and female faces. On the story of that erasure, itself including erasure, Bulamwini told The Lily, quote, People act surprised when this happens, but exclusion, discrimination, and bias in technology are the consequences of decisions like this being made every day. The result is AI and other technologies that don't work for black women, people of color, and other underrepresented communities. Close quote. The press corps response to Naomi Osaka's announcement that she would not be attending press conferences during the French Open served to illustrate why athletes might dread such events in the first place. As Fair's Olivia Riggio wrote recently, when the 23-year-old tennis star made her announcement in late May that she was opting out of press conferences due to the anxiety they caused her, she expected a fine, but not the subsequent uproar. While some outlets ran compassionate stories, there were those that treated her decision as a diva move, meant as a personal attack on them. 
Piers Morgan calling Osaka an arrogant, spoiled brat was just par for the course. But outlets including Reuters, Forbes and Al Jazeera referred to her decision as a media boycott, implying her motives were somewhat hostile rather than a simple effort to prioritize her mental health. Then there was CNN that opted for a segment melodramatically headlined, 2018 photos of Naomi Osaka take on new meaning, running a reel of pictures of Osaka crying after her controversial 2018 open win against Serena Williams. Washington Post reporter Ben Strauss claimed it was a matter of disrespect for journalism itself, citing a principle that players ought not to be able to decide not to see the press if they, quote, have a bad day, close quote. He cited a sports reporter who says she's worried about the effects on women's sports if the biggest stars don't talk to reporters. Quote, if she's not talking to reporters, will there be as much coverage for the next Naomi Osaka? Close quote. Riggio cites some of the coverage were presumably being threatened with the lack of reporters asking women tennis players to give us a twirl after winning a match, questioned about whether their opponent's supermodel good looks intimidated them, or quizzed after a match on why they aren't smiling. A ProPublica report on the leaked federal tax documents of super-wealthy individuals bolsters the case that the U.S. economy is set up in favor of the wealthiest. The report doesn't show illegal activity, and that's what makes it so damning. As Ari Paul reports for FAIR.org, ProPublica states that the report, quote, demolishes the cornerstone myth that everyone pays their fair share and the richest Americans pay the most, close quote. Examining the leaked taxes of billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Michael Bloomberg, Warren Buffett, and Elon Musk, the investigation found that the wealthiest can perfectly legally pay income taxes that are only a tiny fraction of the hundreds of millions, if not billions, their fortunes grow each year. The source of the leaks is anonymous, and ProPublica was clear that they thought hard about how the release serves the public interest in fundamental ways, allowing readers to see patterns that were, until now, hidden. For many, the study is not surprising, but still a call to action. And for the political and media class, too. Except the action they want is repercussions for ProPublica and whomever leaked the information. Top-ranking Democrats and Republicans have said they will seek justice, not for what the leaks exposed about wealth inequality, no, but by catching and punishing whoever allowed that information to be known. The Wall Street Journal editorial board saw the leaks as a well-timed political hit, noting that the main Democratic argument for a tax hike is that the rich should pay their fair share— the journal insisted, quote, the timing here is no coincidence, comrade, close quote. Edward Luce of the Financial Times also smelled a rat, advancing a reasonable suspicion that the IRS was hacked by an, quote, entity that does not wish U.S. democracy well, close quote. Whoever the leaker is, Luce says they would know it would deepen public cynicism about America's creed of playing fair and working hard. Well, cynicism is already pretty deep, Paul writes, when pundits think it more likely that revelations of systemic economic injustice are a foreign plot rather than a sincere attempt to provoke reform, or at least debate. 
And finally, the Washington Post published an analysis June 14th on whether Black Lives Matter protests pushed cities to defund police. The answer, they say, is yes and no, but they promise to keep looking. Okay, while they do that, we were struck by the language the Post uses in the second paragraph of this article, in which they explain that overall, cities with more intense protests did significantly decrease their police expenditures, but many increased those budgets, quote, perhaps suggesting a racially conservative backlash, close quote. Racially conservative We have a call out to the Post asking for a definition of that intriguing term. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. U.S. citizens overwhelmingly and unsurprisingly want health care, jobs with livable wages, more equitable taxes on wealth, and everyone's right to vote protected. The U.S. is a nominal democracy, and majorities of the electorate support these things. And the party that promised these things controls the presidency, the House of Representatives, and the Senate. And yet, here we still are. I will surprise no one by saying that one important thing standing between people's needs and elected Democrats' mandate and a better future for millions is the filibuster, the senatorial rule that allows a minority of senators to extend debate on legislation indefinitely unless the majority party can put together 60 votes. Just because a word is invoked frequently or fervently in news media doesn't mean they're explaining it meaningfully. And this is an issue where Americans' ignorance abets devastatingly important political obfuscation, hobbling our ability to enact changes that we want and need and have called for. So here to help us understand the filibuster and the role it's playing now is Andrew Perez. Andrew Perez covers money and influence as senior editor and reporter at The Daily Poster. He joins us now by phone from Maine. Welcome to Counterspin, Andrew Perez. Thanks so much for having me. Well, at FAIR, we're not about blaming the people. You might remember your high school civics class, and you might read the Times or the Washington Post every day, and you can still be misinformed or underinformed about, in this case, what the filibuster is and what it does. So just to start somewhere, I think many people of a certain age, but even beyond that, I think many people think about Jimmy Stewart, you know, when Mr. Smith goes to Washington and he's talking himself hoarse on the Senate floor in a fight against corruption and and cronyism. Uh, Deadline ran a piece recently noting that even when that movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, came out in 1939, the filibuster already had a history associated with blocking civil rights legislation, and particularly Southern senators filibustering a bill against lynching, a bill that huge numbers of the public supported. So if we're talking emblems of the history of the filibuster, maybe less Jimmy Stewart, more Strom Thurmond, would you say? (laughs) Yeah. Today, as it stands, the majority party in the Senate is required to 
find 60 votes to end debate on any legislation. But Congress or, or the Senate has definitely limited the power of the majority to actually enact their agenda. The minority party doesn't have to marshal all these votes on the floor. They don't have to marshal people to talk indefinitely to try to filibuster a piece of legislation. And instead, what basically happens is the, the process will just continue. No, you know, no legislation can advance unless the majority party can together marshal 60 votes on the Senate floor. So they don't have to talk until they're hoarse. They just have to say, we're against it. Yeah, the onus is really on the majority party to produce their votes rather than on the minority party to to stand there on the floor to, to talk their faces off. Yeah, it's, the onus is completely on the majority party at this point. Well, it's interesting. It's seen as protecting the minority. That's one sort of thing that you hear. And then it's also maybe even more frequently talked about as preserving bipartisan collegiality uh, or said differently, forcing Democrats and Republicans to work together. But I mean, you know, is that what it is? I mean, it it, it seems like at this point, it's really more cynical and, and even more sinister than that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, some people like to think that the Senate is just intrinsically supposed to be this cooling saucer as the way the the founders intended. But, yeah, it's there hasn't been much collegiality between the parties for quite a while. And I guess it could work, you know, in theory where, like, there's some give and take on legislation. But one of the primary issues here is that there's not any kind of agreement between Democrats and Republicans on the type of legislation or like what the what the broader issues are that Congress should be addressing. It's not like, okay, we're gonna take a certain issue and, you know, let's hear your side of it and let's hear our side of it. The issue is more that Republicans just are never going to agree to pass any kind of priority agenda items from Democrats even if it was a watered-down version. And, I mean, I think we've seen that a lot. A pretty classic example of it is the Affordable Care Act debate under President Obama. Democrats proposed legislation that is actually fairly conservative. The Affordable Care Act was basically an outgrowth of the Heritage Foundation idea. Years ago, Mitt Romney had passed legislation as the governor of Massachusetts enacting the kind of, like, first test case for that type of legislation. And there were zero Republican votes for it at all, no matter how watered down the bill got. You know, Democrats didn't include ideas like a public health insurance option or Medicare expansion. You know, so if we're still talking about today, those were on the table back in, in 2009 and 2010, and Democrats didn't include any of them in There were zero Republican votes for the bill. And now, you know, we have Mitch McConnell saying this week that he's 100 percent focused on stopping Joe Biden's administration, very similar to what he he said under Obama. So it sounds weird when you then turn to Joe Manchin, who says, well, we can't give up on working together. It just seems like one of these things is not like the other. Yeah. There was a great story yesterday at The Intercept from Lee Fong about 
how Joe Manchin is, you know, A, looking to preserve the filibuster and basically begging big donors to help put pressure on other Democrats and, and Republicans to try to get the parties to work together just just a shred so that he can preserve the filibuster. There was talk that he wanted them to lean on a specific senator, uh, Roy Blunt from Missouri, who's going to be retiring, basically try to pressure him to support uh, you know, January 6th commission so that where, where the parties will agree to investigate, you know, whatever happened at the, the Capitol insurrection a few months ago. And the reason for that was he said that then it would, he, he basically intimated they should give a job or, or dangle a job offer to, to Roy Blunt so that he would support the January 6th commission and then progressives and, and even more Democratic, uh, more establishment Democratic senators would, you know, just lay off the gas a little bit on, on the need to end the filibuster, because it would be proof that in some ways the party still could work together if, uh, if big business could buy off one Republican senator to support uh, an investigation. Boy, and you wonder why folks are turned off electoral politics, which maybe we'll get to in a second. But I just in terms of point of information, Democrats, if they wanted to, could end the filibuster tomorrow. Is that right? And there are reasons that they should want to not kick it down the road. There are reasons that if they really do want to put through their agenda or what we understand to be their agenda, that now is a whole lot better than later. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it, Democrats can nuke the filibuster if they find 50 votes plus the vote from Kamala Harris as, as vice president. They can nuke the filibuster whenever they want. They could attempt to do that on the Senate floor. And, yeah, there's very good reason to do it now, which is that Democrats right now even though they have a very small Senate majority, they, they control both houses of Congress and the presidency, which means that they can actually enact whatever they want in that case without Republican input. And, you know, not to sound too partisan, but like, I think it's understood at this point, Republicans are not going to support any of Joe Biden's agenda. They've said it. Yeah. Yeah. They've, they've been pretty open about it. And there's just, you know, a million different things that now is the time to pass. For instance, we haven't had a minimum wage increase in, in 12 years. It just was never passed during the Obama administration. It just, and the reason, you know, in part was because Democrats didn't start talking about it until after they lost control of the House. And Republican Speaker John Boehner obstructed the agenda and wouldn't have it. So, yeah, now is the time that Democrats actually have full power to pass Joe Biden's agenda, you know, whether it's one I like or whether it's one that's weak and, and moderate, and you know, what have you. Yeah. It's the only time any of that's going to happen because there's a very good chance that Democrats lose control of the Senate soon. And in fact, you know, they can lose control of the Senate next November, but they could also happen literally any day because they have a 50-50 majority there and a whole bunch of old, old senators. Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. You know, it just is one health event away from a shift there. Mm -hmm. What do you think about politicians love to split the difference, media love to do that triangulation as well, and meet in the middle somehow, and we're hearing a lot about 
tweaks or modifications to the filibuster or maybe a greater reliance on reconciliation. What's your sense about tweaking versus eliminating? Is there a danger in fiddling around with details on the filibuster rather than going big? Yeah, I mean, I think the danger Joe Manchin is talking now According to that intercept piece, one of one of the ideas is like, what if uh, you only required 55 votes for cloture? Well, that's not going to do anything, right? Like Democrats don't have 60 votes for anything. They don't have 55 votes for anything. And then maybe you return to the talking filibuster, the the whole the whole Jimmy Smith goes to Washington thing. Yeah. That's again a similar issue. You need to functionally change how this works. I think there's some concern with kind of removing the guardrails from governing here, right? Like, what if Republicans are then able to impose their will, uh, if they're then able to, to legislate however they see fit in a few years? But, you know, if if Democrats just continue fiddling around and not accomplishing anything, it increases the likelihood that Republicans control the Senate next cycle. It just, you know, it just does. I think the party probably thinks that they've done a, a good job already during the Joe Biden administration because they passed a single COVID-19 stimulus bill. That's not going to carry people till next year. A lot of the benefits sunset fairly soon, including the, the unemployment provisions, the federal expanded unemployment benefits. And, you know, the other thing about it is Republicans in 25 states that are led by Republicans have actually already canceled those unemployment benefits. They're already ending this month and next month instead of end of September. So I think the economic impact of that legislation is getting affected already. And it's, the, you know, it wasn't designed to carry the party for that long. Like some, some of the stuff in there, they, you know, they're already trying to extend. I don't think they'll be rewarded if they, <laughs> if they, you know, just rest on their laurels from here on out or pass like another one or two big bills in the next two years. It's just not a realistic approach to governance. No, and doesn't meet the occasion. Far too many people are, are hurting. Uh, well, let, let mm-hmm. me ask you finally about media. You know, back in 2009, Fares Jim Narikis was writing about how Reporters at, for example, the Washington Post used to make an effort to explain the filibuster. You know, when they talked about it, they would say, you know, it might be harder to get 60 votes to cut off a filibuster. You know, they would sort of tie that in there. And then along the years, it got dropped into a kind of shorthand. And then they began referring to just the 60 votes most legislation requires. So they kind of got less and less clear in terms of pointing out to readers what was going on. And then finally, everything Democrats promise is virtually contentless. It's like shadow boxing if they aren't going to do the thing that will allow it to actually happen. And this you've written about, you suggested back in March that, you know, talking about new gun legislation, for example, if we don't eliminate the filibuster, well, that's just meaningless and it should be treated as such. And I just wonder, you know, if media don't connect promises, democratic promises, to a failure to activate the mechanisms for making them happen, it just seems like they're doing the public a serious disservice. Yeah. You know, I think media covers a lot of like the day to day 
what goes on in Washington, what, what people are saying, like what, you know, this new legislation just dropped. And like maybe at the bottom, you know, I might say like this, uh, the, there's not a lot of chance that this will actually become law because it, it, it won't, Democrats won't be able to find 60 votes for this. Right. And I, I do think it does people a disservice because like this is an overriding issue, right? Like the filibuster functions as a general block on, on all legislation. And, you know, like, so it was big news a couple a couple weeks ago when, when Joe Manchin endorsed the PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which is like a pretty sweeping package of, of labor reforms and would, would be a really, really beneficial thing for this country. It would it would give people a lot, you know, potentially a lot more power in the workplace in, in a way that we haven't seen in years. Right. And the thing about it is he might have co-signed the legislation, but it is not going to happen right now unless he is willing to, to end the filibuster. It's just talking about it is insulting to workers. And it's the same issue with new gun laws, mm-hmm. with new gun rules. It's just not going to happen right now in the Senate. So that, to, you know, after every mass shooting, to be like, well, we, we need new gun laws. Like, that's true. Yes. But like you guys are also the same people functionally blocking it because you're insisting on a threshold that that you know you can't meet. I think it's very insulting to to people who you know look at look at what happened this year. There was a huge groundswell that took place in Georgia where people organized like hell to flip two Senate seats to give Democrats this majority so that Joe Biden could pass his agenda into law. And you know right now it's June and they've passed one bill. It's just their one major bill. It's it's it, there's a fundamental disconnect between you know what the party says and then how it actually governs in power. And it's not a new issue, but it's one that I think is just really really hard to get around. We've been speaking with Andrew Perez. He's senior editor and reporter at the Daily Poster. They're online at dailyposter.com. Andrew Perez, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on the website FAIR.org. That's also the place to learn about our newsletter extra, our action alert network, and to show support for the show if you're so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.